welcome to the Awakening Church podcast. We exist to awaken this generation to new life in Christ. Thanks for tuning in. To find out more, go to awakeningchurch.com. Well, whether you've been coming to Awakening once or you've been several times, whether you've been to many other churches other than Awakening or Awakening is the only church you've ever known, a question I think that's just good for us to ask every once in a while is this simple. Why do you come to church? Why do you come to church? You know, we come for a lot of different reasons. Maybe we just want to hear kind of an inspirational talk. Maybe we like the music. But also, like, why did you come to church in the first place? What first brought you to church? Was it a friend who said, come hang out? I want you to learn more about Jesus. I want you to learn about the faith. Was it your own desire to connect with God or connect with someone else? I I think there's, for all the various reasons we show up to church and why you showed up today, I think there's a reason beneath our reasons, and it's this simple, connection. I think we want to connect with God, and we want to connect with other people. In some ways, through our weeks or through our lives, as we distance ourselves from church or from spiritual communities, we become, to use a strong term, lonely. We become lonely for God. Where is he in our life, in our day-to-day work? We don't really understand where he shows up or where he is. We become lonely for God and we become lonely for other people. At our work or in our school relationships, we're often used to be, uh, we, we become used to being used, commodified. We are what we do, what we produce in our work, in our school, even in our family life. We are what we produce for our children. And we just want to be known and to know others just for who we are. It's in this kind of lonely state, maybe before we try church, that we try the spiritual, the solo spiritual quest. Do you know this? This is the time where you say, I just need some time with me and God. You go on a walk in the woods, take a couple of pictures, and reflect on the beauty and the infinite infinity of the universe. And as you think about this, you kind of feel some vague spiritual connection to the larger life that exists that human beings think about that your dog does not. And as you do this, you start to realize that it's actually kind of comforting. And maybe this solo spiritual quest is really all that you needed, you know? You've been hurt in the past. Things have gone wrong. There was that friend that betrayed you. There was that guy that let you down, that girl that broke your heart. And people are complicated, and you'll never be hurt by a tree and so as you wander around, <laughs> as you wander around the woods taking pictures and having me and God time, you realize that maybe this is all I need is just me and God. But you see, the problem with meeting God is God, the true and living God, will always lead you to other people. Because you know when you're out on that walk alone and you're connecting with some ethereal spirituality that you were actually made for something a lot more. That the deepest longing of your soul is to be known by a person. That the great impersonal and infinite God is not really a God you can know. And that to know that God, perhaps, is to figure out how to know other people. You see, when we take the solo spiritual quest, we often experience in the midst of it what Lauren Winner calls the loneliness of the everyday. She writes this in her spiritual memoir called Still. She says, The loneliness of every day is the loneliness of no one knowing 
if your plane lands on time, of no one to call if you lock yourself out of your house or your alternator dies. I find that loneliness worse, and this is in a context, than the loneliness that comes from a breakup or a divorce. The loneliness of the everyday. Since 1980, did you know the number of Americans who describe themselves as quote-unquote lonely has doubled? Americans in 1980 said, uh, would use that word to describe themselves. That was 20% of Americans. Today, it's 40%. That means nearly half of Americans would use the word lonely to describe their life. Americans were studied in the 1950s with this question. How many close friends do you have? In 1950, the median answer was 10. In 2015, it was 2. A strange study also showed recently that if you're, this is crazy, if you're a part of a group, any group, that shows up, that meets weekly, that knows you'll be there and you know who will be there, any group, your likelihood of dying in the next year decreases by 50%. Isn't that crazy? It's quite crazy what community can do. I mean, even if you're a part of a bowling league, like your likelihood of dying decreases, which is strange. Uh, yeah, community and togetherness is not a complementary human pursuit. It is a necessary human pursuit. This is why we do this series called Together. We want to remind you the heartbeat of faith is also the heartbeat of human life, which is to know one another and to be in relationship with one another. And the key word I'm going to be using throughout this message is the word friend. Last week, the key word I used was disciple. What does it mean to leave one community to join another? What does it mean to let go in order to take hold of all that God has for us in this community? That was last week, and go back and listen to it. This week, I want to use the term friend. And to you, friend is going to mean 900 different things, and I don't even want to come out with a definition of friend. Instead, what I want to do is listen to the words of Jesus as he spoke to his friends and to paint more of a picture on a canvas of what friendship can look like in the Christian community. And here, in Jesus' words, we will hear not just thoughts about friendship, but thoughts from a true friend, from someone who sat side by side. I know when I use that word, you might think of all sorts of things, but understand that Christianity is unique because it does not just offer you solo spirituality. Christianity offers you connection. It offers you connection with God, and that connection with God happens as you connect with other people. And that's why we want you to join a midweek group. That's why we want you to be a start, part of startup. If that's a need that you have in your life, on that black card, you can put your name and your contact information and just mark off midweek groups as you think about this message. If you have a Bible, let's go to John 15 to see what Jesus says to his friends. John 15, verse 12. Jesus is sitting with his friends before he dies. And as he's sitting around the table... He makes these comments and commands to, the peop to those who have been following him for years. He says, this is my commandment, verse 12, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, 
But I chose you and appoint you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Three thoughts on friendship in Jesus, from Jesus here in John 15. The first is the foundation of friendship. It's articulated in verses 12 through 13. Jesus says plainly, this is my command that you love one another. That's the command. As I have loved you, he says. Greater love, he describes as not knowing anybody but this. Like the greatest love possible, Jesus says in verse 13, is that one would lay down their life for a friend. That's the greatest kind of love possible. And the foundation of that love of you loving another person is the way Jesus has loved you, the gospel. Jesus has loved you in that he laid down his divine privileges and his right to a long life, cut it short, was executed on a cross, died, buried, and rose again for not just his friends, but for his enemies. And as he did this, he instructed all of human life what love really is. One of his disciples who actually wrote this gospel uh, text wrote a letter later in 1 John. And he says very plainly, by this we know love. And some of your translations would say this, this is how we know what love is, colon, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. How do we know what love is? How do we define love? How are we aware of what love really is? We know what love is when we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus and we see a man who was executed and looked at his executioners and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they are doing. He's the one who laid down his life for those of us, all of us, who did not believe and did not know him to be who he really was. We rejected him. We recoiled at his sight. We thought his teachings were too hard, and he still laid his life down for us. And that's how we know what love is. We don't define love off of anything else other than the man Jesus who laid his life down on our behalf. And that in, then influences how we love other people. It's the foundation to friendship. It's the very thing that keeps us anchored, that we relate with our friends in the same way Jesus has related with us in this way. We are constantly laying down our interests to serve and support another person. Constantly laying down our interests to serve and support other people. So if you're a Christian today, remember you don't experience the gospel once and then go make your friends. You don't experience the gospel and then go on into some community randomly and start to just act as if you would normally act. No, the gospel is not something you move on from. The gospel is something that moves you on. The gospel continues to go, continues to fuel you, change you, shape you. It informs everything about every relationship from here on out. If the gospel, that the gospel being Jesus laying his life down and raising in victory, if that is the center of your life, then this death to self kind of love will rearrange every current relationship you're in right now. It will take shape in your mind differently in how you see other people. As you reflect on how Jesus has loved you, you learn how to love others. And that creates friendships. Every person, I, would, I just would argue this. Every person in this room, all of you who have experienced love in some way, has experienced a glimpse of the gospel. Someone laid their life down for you. Someone gave up the things they wanted for your benefit. And you did that in return to somebody else and it created a relationship, a friendship. That's because that's what love really is. Love is not words. 
Love is not compliments. Love is not affirmations on lifestyle. Love is sacrifice. Love is blood. Love is laying a life down for another person. A great question I I try to ask myself is this. How would Jesus show his kind of love to this person? How would Jesus show his kind of love to whatever person is in front of you? What would he do? How would he act? How would he lay his life down? It's a great prayer, a question for you to consider. You know, I think many of us have lost friends or walked away from friendships simply because we haven't had the resources to love that person. Do you know what I mean? Have you ever been betrayed? Has someone ever walked out on you, abandoned you, and hurt you? Has someone even just not had time for you? Maybe on a lighter level, they've just found other friends when they were finding you and lost time for you. Wherever you're at, I wonder, you know, sometimes we walk away from friendships because we don't have the resource to love the other person. Now, don't get me wrong. Some friendships just die. Some friendships fade away. We're not going to be friends with everyone for all of our lives. Sometimes people actually hurt us. They abuse us, and we need to cut them out of our lives completely for our safety and our well-being. But sometimes I think, don't you think sometimes we've walked away from people too soon because we lack the ability to love them in return? When they didn't love us, we couldn't show them the love back. You see, this is what the gospel offers. It offers fuel. It offers a resource to go to when you don't have any love to give. You see the love that Jesus has given you and suddenly there appears the ability and the power to die again to yourself in service to another person. It doesn't work to sit around and wait for people to sacrifice for you. It just doesn't work. We must engage in sacrificing for other people. As we often say to children, you know, if you want to make a friend, be a friend, right? If you want people to be there for you, to sacrifice for you, there will be an ability we will need to lay down our lives for other people. And the foundation of this very thing is the gospel. If that's the foundation, well, how does it work from there? How does it function? That's the second part of this passage is the function of friendship. If the foundation of the gospel is there, the function of the gospel is in this, that the more we become like Jesus and stare into the gospel and stare into that help, it will work hand in hand with becoming a great friend because this will happen. You see, suddenly, when you look to Jesus and his word and you look to his commands and his life, you realize all of the other people that are doing that same thing. And suddenly, discipleship and friendship overlap. Last week, we talked about discipleship. If you need to know what that is, this idea of leaving one community in order to receive another community. It's as you leave to receive that you realize there's so many other people doing the same thing. And again, I don't have time to go into that word discipleship, but it's actually one of the aims we should have in discipleship. As we leave one community and join in the community of Jesus, as we leave one way of life for his way of life, we don't do it alone. We actually look side by side and realize all the people doing this together. Ajith Fernando is a Sri Lankan theologian. He's been doing theology in Sri Lanka for 35 years, teaching the Bible with Youth for Christ. He wrote this great book, and he says this in Discipling in a Multicultural World. He said, one of our aims in discipling is to be friends with those we disciple. That's one of the aims 
right? Jesus says in this passage, no longer do I call you servants. This is not anymore about what you can do for me. No longer do I call you servants. I call you friends. So one of the aims of discipleship is that we become friends. Once they've been exposed to our lives and teaching, they feel one with us, and we can enjoy beautiful friendship in truth, in mission, and in communion with Christ. Discipling then has to do with responsibility, not status. See, as we step into community, we will get let down. We will get hurt. Again, if we take the route out of the solo spiritual quest, the heresy of an individualized community, and we step into the discipleship community, we will realize all the people around us. You see, C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, which I talked about a little bit last week, he says that friendship is best defined by two people looking at each other and saying, you too? You also? That's how you've made all your friends. Even your early childhood friends were about interests. High school, you know, young adulthood. You make friends based off of mutual interests. You look to the right and to the left at someone, and they like the same TV shows as you. They like the same movies. They like the same music. They like the same culture, right? You look to friendships side by side and say, you too? And what happens when we join a group and when we step into Christianity, we look at each other and we go, you're following Jesus too? And that mutual interest ends up fueling the love. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says this in The Four Loves. He says, notice that friendship thus repeats on a more individual and less socially necessary level. Companionship was between people who were doing something together, hunting, studying, painting, or what you will. The friends will still be doing something together, but something more inward, less widely shared, and less easily defined. Look at this. We picture lovers face-to-face, but friends... Side by side, their eyes look ahead. This is the image of friendship. Side by side, going, you also? You too? As side by side, moving forward. You see, lovers are face to face. They look into each other's eyes and gaze at one another's beauties and intricacies. But friends are side by side. They stand looking at something else that's beautiful outside of the friendship. This is what Lewis unpacks. He gives two kind of facets to friendship in this quote. The first is that friendship is not utilitarian. What I mean by that is he says, he puts it this way, that it's less socially necessary. Lewis, that's a 1950s way of saying there's no pragmatic or sensible use for friendship in society. In in fact, when friendship becomes commodified, it's instantly ruined. You think about the band that was getting together for the love of music and for the enjoyment of the company of each other, and then they started making money, right? The business partners who got into a startup together for the love of benefit of business and technology and flourishing, and then suddenly money got involved, right? And all of a sudden the friendship became commodified and it ruins the friendship. That's why these steps are very, very difficult. Friendship in its purity can't be used for anything in order to remain pure. It must be simply mutual enjoyment of something else, which is the second thing he unpacks. He says that friendship is about something other than the friendship, Every great relationship you've had has had a lack of focus on, quote, the relationship. Some of you guys are in the defining the relationship phase of a dating thing, and you're in the DTR, and that's a quick way to ruin it. Now, I know you got to have talks, you got to have, right? But navel gazing at your relationship is a sure way to destroy it. If you are overly obsessed with your friendship, it will spiral in on itself and suffocate. But, If your relationship is about something else beyond and sitting side by side, you're able to illuminate the relationship in a new way. And in Christianity, that something else 
is Jesus Christ. The thing that you are gazing at side by side and looking at is the person, the work, the life, the teachings, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the words of Jesus Christ. And as you sit side by side with many other people through your life and say, you too, you're also following Jesus on this thing? You're also working to know Jesus more, to understand his ways? Suddenly, relationships flourish. Friendships only flourish when the focus is not the friendship. And last week, I juxtaposed the difference between an individualized community and a discipleship community. How individualized communities are all about me stepping into church or stepping into a small group to say, does this group, assessing this group, and we go, does this group benefit me and support my preferences and my goals? If this group does not support my preferences and goals, this church, this small group does not support my preferences and goals, I'm out. That's individualized community. And so long as you are thinking about community individualized, you'll never find it. Likewise, if you show up to church looking for friends, you'll probably not find them. Love me, I need friends, I need community, I need this, I, 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 I. That's a sure way to have friendships not happen. Instead, when you step into community and you make it about something else in the mutual interest of following Jesus, suddenly the relationships around you will flourish. But so long as you're looking around for the individualized need that you have, you just won't find community because that's not what community is. Jesus says, this is how we know what love is, right? Greater love knows no one than this, than someone laying their life down for each other. Therefore, the opposite of love is the withholding of the self and the promotion of the self in light of other relationships. In that moment, you ruin all of your relationships. So long as you're looking for the relationship, so long as you're looking for the friendship, you just won't find it. But look to Jesus. Step into a community of people and together sit in the circle to stare at his word and stare at his ways and suddenly the relationships around you will blossom. And they will blossom as you start to stare at the, the teachings of Jesus, you'll start to realize what he's actually teaching. And it's this. Now Jesus says this. This is my commandment to you in verse 12. He says this. That you love one another as I have loved you. This is my command, that you love one another. See, suddenly when you look to Jesus, you realize you can't obey Jesus without other people. Faith is impossible without friends. Here's why. How can you obey the command of Jesus to love one another without another? Are you with me? You can't do it. So let's abandon this solo spirituality that says it's just me and God. Because if it's you and God and you start to take his word seriously, guess where he's going to lead you? Right here with all these crazy people. You're going to start to read his word and go, in order to practice what God is asking me to do, I got to find another. That's why the New Testament is obsessed with this stuff, you guys. The New Testament, did you know, it has this Greek idiom, one another. It's right here in John 12, or John 15, verse 12. It's all over the New Testament. In fact, scholars uh, distill it down to 59 one another commands. I'll just show you a few of them on the screen here. 59 one another commands. Here's a couple of them. Laying down your life for one another. Being at peace with each other. It's, just, it's translated each other or one another, right? Same Greek words. Honor one another above yourselves. Stop passing judgment on one another. Instruct one another. When you come together to eat, wait for each other. That's the practical one. Just hold off on the burrito until everyone's seated, Okay. <laughs> Carry each other's burdens, forgiving each other. Do not lie to each other. Admonish one another or correct them. Speak into their life. 
Encourage one another daily. Pray for each other. Just keep these on the screen for a little bit. Don't you see what your faith even is? You know this too. You know, you long for something beyond just an ethereal spiritual practice, mindfulness into the great abyss of your own mind. That is not where spiritual truth is found. Your soul does not just crave an isolated theoretical God. Your soul craves others. Your soul craves a community. Your deepest human desire is met in Jesus because Jesus thrusts you into his body. He shows you into his community. He ushers you into this great assembly and he says, these are the people you practice the one another's upon. These are the ones that you show the one another love, self-sacrificing love to. These are the people. You don't get to choose them. They've been chosen for you. That's how it works. But in here, we get the great gospel declaration that faith and life and humanity is not about the individual pursuit for truth and God. Life as a human being is about loving God and loving neighbor. The two are the same. Jesus said it. He was asked one time, what's the greatest command? And he put loving God and loving your neighbor in the same command. Because they're inseparable. Because you cannot obey the ways of Jesus without other people. Examine your life now. Who are the people that you are practicing the one another's to? The community is here. This is why you have church. This is why you have awakening. Assess in your life. Your closest friendships are the people that you treat this way and that treat you this way, that stare into the mutual interest of Jesus. You know, I often think my wife and I, while we have the romantic, the the lover relationship that C.S. Lewis describes, a face-to-face I actually think the great fuel to our marriage is the side-by-sideness. The longer I'm married, I've been married nine years, the longer I realize this is really the true fuel of marriage right here. It's practicing the one another side-by-side together in life with Jesus. That's where the real help comes in marriage. Because as anyone who's been married for any amount of time will realize, the romance comes and goes. The eroticism comes and goes through seasons of life. It doesn't last all, all of your life. In fact, the older you get sometimes, that these things change, that your lover relationship change. However, the friendship is always there. It always remains. And it's, and it's in this that God's great provision is given to us, that all people will not experience romance, but all people can experience friendship. You know, my closest friends in life, I've realized, cannot utilize me in any way. <laughs> Have you ever noticed this? Like, they do not care that I'm a pastor. Like, your best friends, they don't, their most important thing about you to them is not what degree you've gotten or are going to get or what job you have. They can't utilize you in any way. I, I realize my best friends, right, they don't read my books, they don't listen to my sermons, and if they do, they are rarely impressed by them, okay? Even if they do, they're, they're like, yeah, I read part of it, you know. Um, and I'm like, just don't lie to me, okay. Um, Right, They're not fascinated by me, and there's not some skill that I have that's useful to their own advancement. A friend is not someone that can help you in your career. In other words, to my best friends, I'm useless and unimpressive, and that's the greatest gift. (laughs) Because these are true side-by-side friends who love me because of our mutual love in Jesus Christ. 
They don't love me for what I can do for them. Friendship is not about what I do for you. Friendship is not about what you do for me. Friendship is about what you and I do together. That's where the magic of friendship lies. We share something. We enjoy something. We worship someone together. We are pursuing the knowledge of God together. And so, who are you walking side by side with? Who in your life loves you but cannot utilize you? Who are you committed to for no other reason other than following Jesus? Who are you committed to for no particular useful reason? The truth is, you do not just need friends, but God knows you need to learn to be a friend. That's why he's placed you in community. I believe it's in being a friend, in practicing the one another's in faith, side by side, in relationship with Jesus, the fruit starts to blossom, which is the final space in Jesus' line. In verse 16, the fruit of friendship. He says, I, I, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. You should go and bear fruit. These things I command you so that you love one another. Why does friendship matter? Why is friendship necessary? Well, like I said in the introduction, you need friendship because human connection is not complimentary. You, you know this. I, I don't got to tell you. I just got to remind you, right? Human connection is not complimentary. It's necessary to human life. And Jesus knew this and provided this for us and this way that we can bear fruit by loving each other, obeying the commands of Jesus, looking at the things he said to us, and fruit starts to bear in our lives. We experience love. We experience the abiding. Look at that. Your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in my name, you will have. It's in practicing these one another's in side-by-side relationships that we really receive from our faith what we've always wanted, which is the connection. Connection to God and connection to others. You know, despite what you've heard, we all do not need romantic love. All of us do not need eroticism. All of us do not need to be sexually fulfilled. All of us need love. And what love truly is, is found in friendship. A great lie in the Western culture today is that if you and I do not live a sexually satisfying life, we don't live a full human life. In other words, if we, we, we have been told in this culture and discipled, inoculated with this idea that if I cannot express myself sexually or romantically with another person, I'm not living a full human life. This does dramatic damage and is a dangerous lie because the fruit of this lie deeply harms our brothers and sisters with severe mental and physical disabilities. There are people in this world who physically will not be able to practice sexual love. There are people in, this, in our communities who will just never experience romantic love. And for the culture to be saying all of these things is to illuminate and to, uh, to kind of make a, make a statement about what it means to be fully human. You may never experience romantic love. You may experience romantic love. What you really need is friendship because you need real love. 
We don't all need charity, we don't all need affection, but we all need a friend. And the greatest gift of God in the gift of humanity is whether you are mentally able or mentally disabled, or whether you are socially able or socially unable, or if you are socially awkward or not socially awkward, God offers you this, that you can love another person and another person can love you. And that's what your soul desires. Your soul does not desire sexual fulfillment. Your soul does not desire romantic love. Those things fade. They come and go as as the years go on in your life. They are not the primary necessary need of a human life. The primary need is the connection to another human being who truly loves you. And so, this is what Jesus offers you. He will not offer you the same thing as Western civilization. He will not offer you the same thing as American life, but he will offer you the deepest longing of your soul, which is to have the practice of the one another's in scriptures that people would love you and forgive you and you in turn would love and forgive them as you sit side by side. Then you will truly live. Then and only then will you experience your true humanity, which is in relationship with God and in relationship with others. Wesley Hill has a profound testimony. If you've read some of his work, he's a single celibate gay man who has rejected the offerings of his sexual life and chosen celibacy, and he's done this because he knows he can find friendship. That he doesn't need the romantic life, and he wrote a spiritual memoir and a theology on friendship called Spiritual Friendship. He tells this story at the beginning of it. A week before he was to leave England, he was going to go to London, and, uh, or he was going to leave London and go to America. He was leaving his community, his friends, his church, and coming to a place where he knew no one. And he was gathering with them right before he left, his friends and his priest, and his priest asked him, he said, what is the one word that you would use to describe your faith? And without thinking, Wesley just said, friendship. And, and he writes, he says, I, I kind of regretted it. It was corny. What did that mean? I, I could have chose forgiveness or grace or some of those churchy words, but I, why did I say friendship? But then he started to realize that this is maybe really the cornerstone of his faith. And he writes this. That night, before he left, crouched in prayer in that dimly lit living room, hands upturned in posture of receptivity, I said wordlessly that I needed friends for the road ahead. While the priest prayed over me, I thought friendship was probably a good word to choose after all. Without people to love and be loved by, I don't imagine faith is very sustainable. Friendship is not a complementary component to your solo spiritual life. Friendship is a necessary component to life in Jesus Christ. When I was a youth pastor... One of my oldest volunteers as a youth leader, he's in his mid-60s and his name was Roger. He was folksy, quiet, and terribly uncool. Um, And yet, as they often are, the uncool ones, he was my best leader. In his soft and gentle voice, I remember him gathering his boys in his small group and speaking over them this line all the time. He said, Boys, show me your friends, and I'll show you your future. He was one of those leaders that was with sixth graders all the way till they graduated and rolled back and did it again. I think he uttered that phrase hundreds of times. I would quote him all the time to my students. And why would I quote him? 
show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Why would I repeat this over my students? Here's why. I wanted them to understand that the future of their faith did not depend on them. And that's good news. But the future of their faith depended on those with which they surrounded themselves. You might be here today and thinking, I don't know how long I can be a Christian. You might be thinking, I don't think I have what it takes to be a Christian. Welcome to church. You don't have what it takes to be a Christian. And that's the best news. Because God has given you a community in which to practice that. And if you are scared about the future of your faith, all you need to do is look side by side and see who's journeying with you. Because I'll tell you, man, I can almost set my watch to it. Those that surround themselves in a different community and walk away from the church. Is your friends are not the complement to your great solo future. Your friends are your future. Who you put yourself around dictates the future of your life. God knew this and he said this, I have this command for you, that you love one another the way I have loved you. And you cannot obey that command without another. And we can be sure that Jesus has solidified this for this reason. The context of this passage. This passage we're looking at today is Jesus with his friends. And beyond that, it's with some of his friends who were about to betray him. And he was able to speak this word to the committed and the non-committed because he knew he was going to provide the very thing that would knit us all together, his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ and his gospel He's the one who didn't just die for the people he liked. He didn't just die for his friends. He also died for his enemies, thereby making his enemies his friend. This gospel is what we rest on, and it's what leads us into the beautiful place of worship now, where, side by side, we will look to our right and to our left, thanking God for those he surrounded us with, and then stare into the beauty of Jesus, by worshiping him and glorifying his name and coming to the table where we realize he broke his body to place us in a body and he shed his blood so that we could be united as a family. And as we, side by side, step forward into worship and to communion, we will realize what we were really made for, not just a solo spirituality, but a knit together community where we can experience him together. Let's pray. Father, we confess this morning our deep need for you and our deep need for each other. God, we need all the help we can get. We are not strong enough to do this Christian life alone. Thank you, God, for brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray as we worship side by side, as we lift your name up, as we focus on something other than the friendships, other than the relationships, and we focus on you, would you suddenly bloom around us the fruit in our lives you promise that we would abide in community together in you. God, I pray for the, our church for awakening. Lord, that in the Silicon Valley, in a hyper-individualistic society, that we would be a prophetic witness pushing against individualism 
and embracing familial community. I pray that your Holy Spirit would do this work supernaturally as we step into worship and communion together, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.